Thank you, Adam. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark 2. We're making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're this morning we find ourselves in the middle of Mark 2, and we'll read through the beginning of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one who sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old gar- no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and the worse, a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So the disciples were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, but also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, He entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved in their hearts, grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. The Bible says of itself that the grass withers, the flower fades, that the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, thankful for how you've met with us so far in this worship service. We pray that you would continue to work through Holy Spirit, to strengthen, encourage, convict, and challenge us. Your word tells us that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So we pray that you would build us up and use these words for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, when I did construction work back in seminary and in college, 
and um, someone important would come to the job site, like uh, a, someone from code enforcement or an architect or an engineer or one of the owners, as you can imagine, they didn't come up to 19-year-old Josh and uh, roll out the, the blueprints and start talking to me about girder strength. Uh, the, the guy from uh, the, the county of Greenville in the code enforcement office didn't come up to me with his checklist and say, okay, have you, have you made sure that these things are all in compliance? They would say something like this. Who's in charge? Where's your boss? Uh, who is the superintendent on this job? They would ask who's in charge because it was obvious that I wasn't in charge, Right? Uh, and it's really a great question. Who's in charge here? As we've seen over the last several weeks, we've seen the authority and the heart of Jesus on display in the first few chapters of Mark. We've seen it displayed in his preaching and teaching, his praying, his healing, him casting out demons. We've seen the authority and heart of Jesus in moving toward the physically and spiritually broken And last week we saw a glimpse of another theme that will unfold more in this section and in the rest of Mark's gospel. We see this growing conflict, attention, and opposition to Jesus' message and mission, particularly opposition from religious leaders. So the bottom line question that I want us to think about this morning is, who's in charge? And at every stage and at every season and at every turn, the answer is loud and clear. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the King of heaven and earth. He's the first and last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come. He is in charge. He is Lord. And it was true then, and it's also true now. Jesus is still Lord. And because He's Lord, we're called to trust Him and follow Him, and submit to His authority. We're called to retune our hearts and our minds and our our lives and our actions around His sovereign rule and reign. And that could mean a couple things. Uh, Actually, we prayed about it already. It could mean bowing your knee to Jesus Christ for the first time. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, it could mean responding to the lordship of jesus christ by submitting yourself to him ultimately and for many of us in this room for most in this room responding to the lordship of christ means bowing your knee for the thousandth time or the ten thousandth time in discipleship and growth and confession and repentance and transformation into God's image. May God help us to respond to His Lordship with obedience and humility and a willingness to follow Him in the days and weeks ahead. So let's look at this passage together. There are three snapshots, three stories that point us to this growing tension, but also to the authority and lordship of our servant king, Jesus Christ. So let's look at the passage together. First, and, first, and, first of all, Jesus is the Lord of fasting and feasting. We see this in verses 18 through 22. And, and let's think about a few of the facts that we see as this passage unfolds. Here's a fact, verse 18. 
John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees both were fasting. And this may come as a surprise to you, but there's only one day in the Old Testament where God's people were required to fast. It was a day of atonement, one day of the year, but God's people also practiced fasting more than that. Fasting was also often associated with mourning or repentance. And when we read Luke 18, we get a glimpse of what the fasting of the Pharisees looked like. They fasted twice in a week. John's disciples also fasted, and a lot of commentators believe that their fasting was surrounding the message of repentance that John preached. And just to be clear, fasting is still a, a legitimate Christian practice that one would, we would do well to explore to and for the Lord. Remember what Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast... You know, there's, there's kind of an expectation there. Don't do it like the hypocrites. Don't do it so everyone sees you. So it is a legitimate action, but uh, here we see that people were using it to try to get at Jesus. They ask him a question. We see it in verse uh, 18. They're fasting, Jesus. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And uh, at first glance, this may seem like an innocent question, but the context here from what comes before and what comes after, it shows us that this, it wasn't just an innocent question. You ever been asked a question that wasn't really a question? More of a statement, more of an accusation. Maybe you were asked a question that was a judgment. Maybe something like this, when did you start, when did you start stealing from the company? Wait, what? No, uh, uh. I don't. It's not really a question, is it? Their, their question wasn't really a question either. And Jesus responds with the question. He says in verse 19, Can the wedding f- guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And this is such a, a powerful image. It's one that translates into our world. We can relate to this image. Imagine going to a wedding showing up to the rehearsal dinner, going to the reception in funeral clothes, in sackcloth and ashes, with a, a veil over your face. That would not only be inappropriate, it would be offensive. The bridegroom is here. It's time for the wedding. Let's celebrate. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe, rejoice, just like Levi did. When Jesus called him, just like Zechariah would do. Remember, they had a party. Guys, you're not going to believe this, but Messiah is here. He came for messed up people like us. Let's celebrate. And Jesus goes on to explain in verse 20, there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken away and when you will mourn and fast, but now is not that time. He uses two more examples, ones that probably don't connect with us as easily. In verses 21 and 22, he talks about putting a new patch on an old garment. What would happen if you put a new patch on an old garment? Well, that new material would shrink. Almost assuredly, it would shrink. And what would happen is you're trying to fix a hole, but it would actually make a hole worse. It would make things worse. You don't put a new patch on an old garment. And then he also says, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. 
Old wineskins are not flexible. They don't stretch. They're rigid. And new wine is still fermenting. You've seen bread rise, right? That same process is happening in the wine. Gases are being released. It needs to be a new wineskin that's flexible. If you put new wine in an old wineskin, you'll, you'll lose the skin and the wine together. So what's the point? What is Jesus doing? He is taking the Pharisees head on. And He's saying, My kingdom... My authority, my lordship, it won't fit into your small, legalistic, narrow view of life and spirituality. It won't fit into your old garment of legalistic righteousness. It won't fit into your old wineskins of tradition for the sake of tradition. They cannot carry the magnitude and glory and weight of my gospel and my kingdom. See, it's really not about fasting and feasting. It's about the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. Who's in charge here? Jesus. And since Jesus is in charge, since He's Lord, He welcomes us to embrace and reflect His rule and reign in this world. And we do so first and foremost by leaning into and living out of our union with Jesus. So here are some application questions as we think about his interaction with people here about fasting. How are you more worried about or interested in your traditions and your preferences and your little K kingdom and your agenda than the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ? Or to put it another way, What are the areas in your life where you're tempted to rely on what is most comfortable and controllable and predictable and manageable instead of submitting to the authority and lordship of Jesus? What's interesting is that part of the legitimate answer response to both of those things could be feasting or fasting or both. The call is to follow and submit to Jesus Our servant king, he's Lord, he's in charge. Second thing we see, the second vignette is about the fact that Jesus is not only Lord of fasting and feasting, he's the Lord of Sabbath and of rest. Verse 23, look with me in your Bibles. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. One Sabbath day, we don't know exactly when it was, they were going through a grain field and they plucked grain as they walked by. And if you went hiking to Table Rock or to Jones Gap, you'd probably take a granola bar, maybe some trail mix. This is God's ancient snack pack. They could go through the the, the fields, they could take just a little bit with their hands. They weren't stealing. In fact, Deuteronomy 23 allows for this. It says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So that's what they did. They were walking along and they took some grain in their hands and they started to eat. The Pharisees asked another question. It was another question that wasn't really a question. It was a loaded question. And this one goes a little bit further. Why are you doing, verse 24, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? There's a not-so-subtle way of saying, you're doing something wrong. You're working. You're breaking the Sabbath. So Jesus 
responds with a question in verse 25. He answers with the same level of energy and intensity. Haven't you read? Don't you know what David did? And Jesus' answer doesn't directly deal with Sabbath observance, but it does get at the spirit of God's law. And so he gives this example. You remember from 1 Samuel chapter 21, David and his men were running for their lives. He was running from King Saul. He was exhausted. They were hungry. They, t- they were tired. They went to the tabernacle and they, w- and they went to the priest. And what did the priest do? The priest gave them the bread of the presence, which was normally reserved for the priest. 1 Samuel 21 says they were hungry and in need. And so the priest promoted supporting life and mercy in this situation. And what Jesus does here is he, he uses that as an example to talk to them about Sabbath. Verse 27, he says it this way, an explanation. The Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. What is the message? Jesus is telling them, guys, you missed the point. The spirit, the heart of God's law, the spirit of the Sabbath is not about keeping man-made rules. It's about a special gift from God for us. It's a reminder, this is what would have been so beautiful to God's people after they came out of Egyptian slavery. they They were literally driven as slaves. God is not a slave driver. He's built into His His worship in his world, rest. He's not a taskmaster. He graciously invites us to rest in him. And then verse 28, he declares, Jesus goes on to say and state, I'm in charge here. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And to be clear, Jesus is not saying anything that's in conflict with the, the Sabbath principles of the Old Testament. He said In the Sermon on the Mount, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Who's in charge here? Jesus. Jesus is in charge. And since Jesus is Lord, He welcomes us to embrace and reflect His rule and reign in our lives. And we do so how? By leaning into and living out of our union with Him. Have you ever thought about the fact that so much of the Christian life is about rest. Following Jesus is about resting in Him, about resting in His finished work for us. It's about resting from our labors, resting from trying to run the world on our own, resting from trying to pretend that we've got it all together. Are you tired and overwhelmed and exhausted? And I'm not just talking about a stage or a season in your life. We live in a rat race world. And the Lordship of Jesus, make no mistake, the Lordship of Jesus frees us to rest in Him. To rest in the the weekly rhythm of work and rest. And it's not about rules. It's not about running around and pointing out all the faults and failures of others or by self-righteously saying, I rest really well, they don't. Maybe embracing the Lordship of Christ may mean in your life letting go of some of your self-righteous attitudes about Sabbath rest. I imagine for most of us, embracing the Lordship of Christ here means believing and committing 
to God's good plan and heart for Sabbath rest and work and worship and reordering our lives around the lordship of Jesus and around His day and around His worship. Who's in charge here? Jesus. Are you willing to submit to His lordship in your life and follow Him? Third thing we see from this passage is that Jesus is the Lord of life and goodness. We see it in verses 1-6 through of chapter 3. The conflict, the tension is growing in Mark 3. The stakes go up. Things escalate quickly. And it seems so obvious to us, but we need to be reminded here that Jesus is the Lord of life and goodness. His Lordship stands out against the backdrop of the sinful attitudes and actions of the Pharisees. Look at me at chapter 3, verse 1 again. This was a normal thing. He regularly went to the synagogue. It's what he did. He fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. All of the synagogue worship was ultimately about Jesus. So again, he went to the synagogue. And then verse 1, there was a man there with a withered hand. There's a man there who had an obvious um, part of his body that was broken and deformed. And Jesus' reputation of moving toward hurting and broken people was already established. It says, therefore, they watched Jesus. Verse 2. Later, the passage confirms that this was the Pharisees. And to be clear, they weren't watching in faith. They weren't watching in hopeful expectation for what the Son of Man will do next. They were watching in judgment. He was under their microscope. They were waiting for him to step out of line. They were watching to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. Do you remember when uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in in chapter 1? And then it says that uh, at the end of the day after sun went down, all these people came to the house and they were trying to be healed by Jesus. They were so afraid of being accused of breaking the Sabbath that they had to come to to Peter's house after the sun went down. They'd been so wrongly programmed by the Pharisees that they were fearful that even being healed or being helped or receiving mercy on the Sabbath would be considered work and a violation of God's law. Again, they missed the whole point. The heart of God and Sabbath rest is about life and goodness. And so Jesus doesn't even ask, he doesn't wait for them to ask him a question here. In verse 3 and 4, Jesus asks the question. He knows they're watching, that he calls the man to himself, and then he speaks to them. And he asks this question Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. He's getting to the heart of his authority. And the answer is so obvious. You can get an ox out of the ditch, but we can't heal this man who needs life. 
And their answer was crickets. It says they were silent. And their silence was deafening. So Jesus, verse 5 of chapter 3, was grieved and he was angry. He looked around at them. We can picture it, right? We can picture him looking around at them and he was provoked by the hardness of their heart. He was angry with a righteous anger, the same anger that he expressed when he turned the money changer tables over in the temple. And he was also moved with grief at the hardness of their hearts, the same heart that moved him to weep over Jerusalem. And then what did he do? He healed this man in spite of their hard hearts. Maybe also because of their hard hearts. He healed this man. He commanded him to stretch out his hand and he did so. And this was a bona fide miracle just like the rest of Jesus' miracles. It was a declaration that I am Lord. I am God. I'm here. I'm the Lord of life and goodness. And then verse 6 tells us, that they counseled. Now, usually, getting counsel about something's good, right? I mean, you know, hey, I don't, I'm not really sure what to do about this situation. Could you, could you help me? Here, it was not good counsel. It was evil, diabolical, bent on destruction counsel. And instead of accepting and receiving and affirming the undeniable, powerful, majestic, miraculous, gracious, good lordship of Jesus Christ. Instead of saying, all right, look, guys, he's God. Look what he just did. They conspired against him. They planned his demise. And we don't know much about the Herodians, but as the name implies, they were loyal to Herod. They may have had political power, maybe not for the same exact reasons, but they and the Pharisees saw Jesus and his ministry as a threat. And ironically and tragically, the Pharisees, who are men who should have been leading and shepherding the flock of God, promoting life and goodness, they wanted to kill Jesus. They were looking for ways to destroy the Lord of glory. Who's in charge here? Jesus. And since Jesus is Lord, He welcomes us to embrace and reflect His rule and reign in our lives. And we do that first and foremost, how? By leaning into and living out of our union with Him. And how does this apply to us? I doubt many of us have thought about destroying Jesus. Hopefully we're not looking for ways to hurt other people, but our struggle to embrace the lordship of of Jesus is is no less important. It looks a little bit different, but it's no less dangerous to ignore it. Maybe, Maybe embracing the lordship of Jesus in life and goodness... Maybe we struggle when we have apathy in our faith, when there's spiritual drift, when we stubbornly ignore sin. You know what happens when we let things go over time? They become worse. Our hearts become hard. We, come, we have haughty spirits. And this is how unbelief grows in us, sisters and brothers. 
and we give in to the small sins. I'm not hurting anyone. No one knows. It's fine. It's no big deal. And those things creep and creep and creep. And then we're trapped in the darkness and in the isolation. That's how we can crash and burn. Maybe it looks like us ignoring the pain and problems of our sisters and brothers in Christ. Maybe it's us turning a blind eye to the suffering and slavery that's all around us. Yes, we can be angry and outraged, but we can't stay there. We don't have that luxury. We need the Lord to work in us compassionate, sympathetic hearts to move toward others, sacrificially serving and praying for and engaging with the people that we're likely to write off and ignore. How is your life being shaped by the love and life and mercy and goodness of Jesus to take your own spiritual life seriously and to bring life to others, even your enemies? Who's in charge here? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. I want to close with a story about Chris Hill. His nickname is Chowda. Chowda. He's, uh, he's from Massachusetts. Um, in the last month or so, I have discovered his social media account. Chris Chowda Hill is the captain, the commanding officer of the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. It's an, it's an aircraft carrier in the U.S. Navy. And in addition to directing operations for a multi-billion dollar warship, he goes out of his way to support and celebrate and lift up unsuspecting sailors. And one of the ways he does this, and it may seem silly to us, but it means a lot to them, is he invites them to the bridge, that's a control center of the ship, he sits them down in the captain's chair, and he gives them a coin and a cookie. You've got to look it up. And he posts things like this on the internet. Unsuspecting petty officer called to the bridge. And the captain passes along a message. Your mom, your dad, and your brother, they miss you. And he says... Tell them I'm doing a great job and I'm getting the job done. Another post. There's someone sitting in the, in the captain's chair and says, Your wife says she wants to see your smile. And with a huge grin in the picture, he says, Tell her I love her with all my heart. One sailor, as he departed the bridge, said this, this is the way, Captain. Captain Hill wrote, Morale is the gateway to success. It starts with loving and valuing people and requires giving them mission and purpose. Now, in the military chain of command, you obey orders. You follow instructions of your superiors. But good leadership, servant leadership, what does it make you do? It makes you want to follow their lead. And if those simple acts of service and affirmation can fill our hearts, think about how much more we should be captivated and moved and motivated by our captain and our leader and our champion. Who is in charge here? King Jesus. 
The God of the universe is our servant king. He led the way in service and in sacrifice to rescue people like us who haven't earned it and don't deserve his love or his mercy or his grace. He has accomplished his mission and he's still fulfilling it. It's unfolding before our eyes. And what does he do? He enlists us. He empowers us to walk in His ways and to carry His message and to reflect His rule and reign in all of life. What better mission, what bigger purpose, what greater calling could possibly be in this world than to live for God's kingdom and glory as ambassadors on message, on mission in this world. Brothers and sisters, don't settle for old wineskins. Don't settle for restless, lifeless, counterfeit versions of God's kingdom. Who's in charge here? Jesus. He's our Lord. May we follow not with fear. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise and thank You that You revealed Yourself some 2,000 years ago in, in Galilee and in Israel but we still see Your glory coming through the pages of Scripture. And we pray that You would help us to respond to Your Lordship by bowing the knee and saying, even as Tommy prayed, here am I, Lord, send me. So we ask that You'd be working in us for Your kingdom and Your glory. Help us to follow not with fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so...